Greetings, everyone. Welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the nexus of history and business. I'm Jason Dressel, and thanks for tuning in. We've got a lot to cover on today's pod. I have to tell you, in this show, we cover a ton of stuff, from Al Capone to Chaucer to Colonel Sanders. Watch how we're going to connect the dots on those three. And we've got a mystery company to reveal. Uh, The Big Chief and I are going to cover some of the current events over the last couple of weeks, and we'll explore some different dimensions of Valentine's Day, which is coming up around the corner next week. I'm going to talk with historian and author Garrett Peck about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and I'm also going to talk with historian and author Lisa Battelle about some of the origins of Valentine's Day and her interest in saints and feast days. But first, let's start with our mystery company of the day. This company has its 16th birthday this month. That's right, the Sweet 16. And speaking of Valentine's Day, this company launched its own dating service last year. It's definitely a company you've heard of, and uh, I'll give you the big reveal in a little bit. We're also going to dig into the history of online dating, and we're going to talk a little about a 1960s doll-turned-action figure who also has a birthday this month. But before we get into all of that, let's first tune into me and Bruce, the big chief, talking about Davos, the new Edelman Trust Barometer, and Fortress, the latest list of the world's most admired companies. So here's Bruce Weindrick, History Factory's founder and CEO. Hey, Bruce, how are you? All right, man, how are you? Doing good, bud. And uh, so it's... Uh, it's it's January, so we have uh, kind of a, an annual uh, series of, of 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 reports and and news that have come out. Uh, first, let's start with Fortune's most admired companies, uh, which uh, which I think came out just a couple of weeks ago. Yep, and and again, thank you for not you know it's late in, in it's late in the uh, it's late in the month, so thank you for not saying Happy New Year. Um, I'm I'm over it. Uh, I, I make a rule at some point during the month. I stop saying Happy New Year to people. All right, so January, January you know, 16th, I think, is the appropriate. Is that it? Is that the official? All right, well, that's about the time. That I, they, I just made that up, but it feels right. It feels right. You, you, hit, that, you hit that tipping point, and it's like, hey, you know, we, we've had two weeks of this. Well, we'll, we'll, add, we'll add that to our, our list of things that happen uh, uh, January 16th every year, uh, like the uh, Fortune Most Smart. You know, Fortune lists, and there are a long list of fortune lists, uh, go all the way back to the 1950s uh, when they created the Fortune 500. And the the most admired uh, was one of the popular lists that helped them sell magazines uh, back in those days. Uh, You you look forward to that issue, and uh, it sold a lot of magazines, particularly if you were in it. Um, and that's kind of the important thing about the, the, these lists is that you can then say you're on it. The, the, the corporate reputation, uh, the most admired, uh, goes all the way back to 1982. And if you think about it, it was a really, really interesting time, really uh, tough economy. Uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, double-digit uh, uh, unemployment, high inflation. Uh, Reagan was in his... Uh, Reagan was in uh, the White House. The Berlin Wall was still up. It was rough. And Fortune came out with this survey. And if you you look back at it, it's really intriguing because really it had a lot to do. The most admired were pretty much the biggest. I mean, uh, IBM uh, was number one. 
back in those days. Uh, General Electric, uh, that was one of the big ones back in those days. So it's kind of interesting if you look at it over the years, how it evolved. The other kind of major thing with, with the most admired was the major shift uh, when they decided to bring in the service companies because up to that point, they'd all been pretty much manufacturers. And the other interesting thing about it was uh, it was a smaller list. Uh, back in the early days, the most admired uh, really were 20 companies. Uh, and, again, it was the big ones, IBM. Uh, and then you start to watch it evolve. The retailers start to move in, you know, the Nordstrom's, the Target's, the Costco's, but, but if you look at today's uh, 2020 list, it's intriguing because Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, right? Uh, I mean, Microsoft wasn't even publicly traded yet in, in 82. Apple was, was a little, was going through its own problems back in 82. Um, so uh, Google, I think uh, Alphabet, uh, I think those guys would have probably been in high school. Salesforce, he would have been in high school back in those days. But having said that, there are some companies that have been on it uh, for a long, long time. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Walt Disney. And the other really interesting thing that's happened with the most admired is it, it reflects what's happened kind of in, 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 in business in general. There's been a strong shift toward values, okay? The, the, the ability to attract management, great. Quality of management, great. But they had early on social responsibility to the community and the environment, innovativeness, quality, these things have kind of moved up over the years. So it's kind of interesting to see how today's group reflects the employee, the, the consumer uh, 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 interest in companies that have purpose. So Amazon, uh, Apple, Microsoft, Disney, um, it's, even J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, uh, Jamie Dimon has been a whole leader in, in, in the conference board shift from, you know, shareholder to stakeholder, from just yeah. the people who own our shares to a million of people. Salesforce, I mean, again, a leader in that movement. So I think it's really changed a lot, uh, and it reflects the shift in, 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 in our values and in this movement toward corporate purpose. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Bruce. And uh, yeah, I, I might check that. I, I, my recollection is there was only four, or there was only I think four or five CEOs who didn't sign uh, on to the um, the purpose uh, uh, statement for business roundtable. And it'd be interesting to see if any of those four companies are actually on the most admired. Um, and I think two or three of them, the reason why they didn't. Um, sign on was because they basically said they don't have shareholders, so it's not um, relevant, um, which struck me as kind of odd because if you don't have shareholders, you'd think it would be maybe an easy thing to sign on to. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. never mind. <laughs> uh, anyway, but yeah, interesting point in terms of how that list has evolved as well as the, the context of, um, of how it started. So, um, There's no more it's, – it's not big anymore. You know, it, it, you really look at the, 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 the companies that were on that first year, they were just, now, you get, but again, you have companies that are on today like Johnson & Johnson who were there the whole time. Now, Berkshire Hathaway would be a good example of a company 
Buffett's been very clear about his where he stands in terms of the purpose movement. He tends to, to, to toward more toward toward uh, shareholders. But Starbucks, Alphabet, J.P. Morgan Chase, Salesforce, Apple, Disney. It, it's really interesting seeing how they rank so high. And again, how do they do this? They talk to industry uh, executives, and so you know this is these are people. They are ranked by their peers, and so. Uh, and they look at a lot of companies, uh, you know, and so it is, to me, it's a pretty valid reflection of, of, of kind of what's going on out there in terms of the way I think uh, consumers and, uh, and employees in particular, to a lot of the respondents, are top of mind thinking of this is how they think. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting to kind of compare, to your point, the different methodologies that are used to develop a lot of these lists, uh, because we know, of course, from working with a lot of our clients who are on the uh, best to work for list, what they go through to get on that, right? And so there's a lot of companies that just aren't even going to, you know, put the time and, and resources behind what it takes to necessarily get on that list. So the difference of the ones where you essentially have to apply versus the ones that you're uh, you're you're um, observed, you know, by by industry leaders or, or by your peers. Um, I will say that one of the values of these lists is it does sometimes serve as a great way to set criteria. Uh, I remember years ago uh, we were working with. Uh, uh, Arthur Page Society, the uh, professional organization for chief communications officers of large enterprises, and we were working on a project, and uh, one of the committee members, we were coming up with a way to to include uh, member companies in this program, and uh, he said to me, you know, shit, how are we going to, you know, pick, you know, among all these great companies, you know, whoever we don't pick is inevitably going to feel, you know, offended that they weren't included. And I said, well, it's really easy. Let's set up some, some criteria that will limit it. I said, let's just select, say the criteria of companies was that they had to be on the most admired, they had to be on the biggest brands, and they had to be on the best to work for. And, yeah, it, 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 and it immediately kind of set down a, a, a limited set. So we were able yeah. to have an answer of, oh, well, if you weren't invited to participate in this, it's because you weren't on you know, all three of these lists. And he was yeah. like, oh, brilliant. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, um, so so of course, the other big thing that, that happens in January every year, and also and, all, and always garners a lot of uh, media attention and, and scrutiny, uh, is Davos. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about. And I, I think it, yeah, you're saying the yeah, other, you know, is this, was this the 50th anniversary of the 50th it was Davos? The, it was the 50th Davos, and and, 50th and, Davos. and, and this one is just intriguing. First of all, I, I would say to our listeners, you know, go to Google and put in the word Davos. Okay. Um, there is a town called Davos, oh, yeah. but you wouldn't know that by putting in. It's become uh, Davos is a shorthand for the World Economic Forum, right? But it is kind of interesting. But but the, the the story of how it got linked to Davos and how it's evolved is so interesting. It began 50 years ago in 1971 when a business professor from Geneva, Switzerland, Klaus Schwab put together what he called the European Management Forum as a platform uh, that, that, that he saw was going to be, in fact, he was very concerned that European companies couldn't compete in a global marketplace against American firms. It's ironic, but it was kind of a, a protective thing. 
Why did he pick Davos? And again, I don't know if this is a self-fulfilling prophecy or, or, or uh, apocryphal. Thomas Mann's novel, The Magic Mountain, from the, in the 1920s, is a story about a young man who goes to, to a sanitarium in Davos for three weeks and ends up spending seven years in the sanitarium. Comes down... Uh, uh, you know, at the end of this period, and, and spends a lot of time in reflection and with the, with his fellow uh, uh, visitors at the sanitarium, and comes back down into a world that has kind of gone mad, and and so this notion of a place where people can go and think and and think about things that are are important. Uh, is very important. So the, the whole notion of why it even was there uh, is interesting. What happens early on, though, in the early years of Davos, is that uh, a lot of people show up, political leaders show up, to kind of ha set a platform. So in 1980, uh, Kissinger shows up there uh, and uses it to warn about Soviet arms buildup. Uh, in 79, uh, the French premier shows up and talks about energy and raw materials and d dependence on the Middle East. So early on, the focus shifts uh, from this notion of competitiveness of European companies in a global marketplace more to a place where larger, more uh, international conflicts are being resolved. And so it, it, it shifts so that by 87, it's no longer the European Management Forum. It's now the World Economic Forum. We're not here to talk about European competitiveness. We're here to talk about resolving international conflicts, and it changes completely. 2020 reflects what we were talking about earlier, this notion of, and the theme of 2020, better capitalism. Okay? Corporations shifting their focus from profits uh, to m employees, customers, suppliers, to being, you know, more, in, kind of be more purpose-driven. So this one uh, focused on responsibility, uh, stakeholder responsibility, environmental, uh, uh, ESG, this very popular focus. Uh, it's also interesting is, of course, it's almost um, bookended by uh, – uh, a, a, an American uh, real estate tycoon, now president, who who comes to to talk about you know the, the same guy, by the way, who's got tariffs and is upending the entire world trading order, uh, to a young Greta Thunberg who shows up to 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 kind of shame the world's leaders about uh, the importance of, of of environment. They focus typically on manifestos, and this year they focused on climate change which is, was, of course, Greta's message, and also this notion of, you know, the inequality, uh, uh, the, the haves and the have-nots. So the manifesto was to create uh, an opportunity for one billion people by 2030, okay? So climate change was, was extremely important uh, and, and, and was pretty much a basic discussion uh, among it and this notion of the haves and the have-nots. And so it's evolved. And it reflects, if we talked earlier, it reflects a very similar shift that we've seen in the, in the fortunes most admired. Hmm. Interesting point. And, uh, yeah, and I, I didn't 
I didn't realize that it had such a long history. I mean, it feels like Davos it really took off. Maybe it was just my own uh, sort of biased vantage point, but it really felt like it kind of took off in the last, I don't know, 10, 10 to 15 years. Um, well, so. you know, I can give you one, you know, as you gave an example with Paige, I'll give you one example of, of kind of how Davos has changed, in my opinion, uh, particularly about an environmental and responsibility, but how certain things kind of have remained the same, which is just very popular among CEOs. A number of years ago, one of our authors uh, was working on a project, and the CEO said, you know, I'm going to be flying back to the States from Davos to this Midwestern city. Uh, it'll give me a lot of time to be able to work with you on this publication. So our author flew over, uh, met him at the airport at, uh, in Switzerland, got on the flight, and off they went for, you know, the 12-hour flight back to the United States. They're flying along, they're going over the manuscript, and throughout the thing, the, the intercom phone keeps kind of buzzing, and the CEO is picking it up, and, yeah, okay, good, good, hangs it up. And they travel a little bit longer, they're talking a little up, Phone rings again. Yeah, great, great. He's communicating with the with the cockpit. What is so? Finally, our author says to him, "You know what? what what's what's up?" And he said, "Oh, well, here's the deal." He said, uh, uh, "Citicorp, they're about two nautical miles ahead of us. Uh, Procter and Gamble, they're about three nautical miles behind us. These guys were racing back to the United States, and as competitive as they are in those days in their G4s and G5s, they wanted to beat each other." to get back across the United States. Now, talk about environmental impact when yeah, those right. jets all take off. And talk about also, you know, competitiveness and shareholder interest. These guys want to win. The irony, of course, in this case, that night the headwinds were particularly uh, low. And so <laughs> that where, where our plane, uh, our author's plane, was supposed to stop in Newfoundland to refuel, they were able to get to this small Midwestern city without stopping, like in the middle of the night they landed. And in this poor little town, they had a guy who was like the customs guy. They had to rouse him out of bed to come out to the airport in this town to be able to clear them to get in. It's all more, to me, a parable of how things have changed so much uh, in the last 20 years. Yeah. Well, and and to your to, to your point about that that evolution in the focus this year, obviously on uh, more responsible capitalism, uh, that's a good segue to uh, the third annual uh, uh, piece that comes out every January, which is the Edelman Trust Barometer. Yep. And again, this is a 20th anniversary. This is the 20th anniversary this year, and it rolls out uh, at Davos. Um, and, uh, it, you know, again, the best way to look at it is how it's changed, okay? How much it's changed. Right from the beginning, it's always been that, from their standpoint, that trust was based on competence and ethical behavior, okay? But what's interesting is how it shifted. After, you know, looking at the trust in 40 companies over 1919 to 1920, there's been a huge shift. And what they found was that the, the ethical attributes are now driving almost over 75% of the trust capital, while competence drives 24%. And this tracks very much, Jason, like what we talked about in The Most Admired. Back in the old days of The Most Admired, General Electric, the most competent company in the United States, in the world, ranked at the top. 
IBM, the most competent company. But what's shifted in the 20 years since they've been doing this is they've always focused on those two attributes, but the ethical attributes are what's popped up. So this is a big thing. They, they, this year, uh, the trust barometer, they said straight on out, and this is quote unquote, we are living in a trust paradox. And the paradox is very much the paradox we see, I think, here in the United States. I mean, the economic performance uh, is unbelievable. Uh, there's full un unemployment. People have been, you know, moved out of poverty. Yet, at the same time, the institutions like government, NGOs, media, which should be enjoying the highest levels of trust, are, are no one trusts them. All right? And so why is that? Why is that? Well, again, you know, government corruption, corporate scandals, certainly fake news, that's undermined the relationship. And this income inequality has also eroded institutional trust. So what's happened today and what the trust barometer kind of says is that employees want their companies to speak up on these issues, to, to deal with these issues, to help train people. And consumers, interestingly enough, share that exact same concern. So, so, so what, what, what the trust barometer and I think what Edelman is saying now is that, look, you can no longer, you, you now have to talk. You can't talk. You've got to walk the walk. Companies have to now take a lead in solving what they call this trust paradox. Okay? So what are you starting to see now? You're starting to see companies paying a much higher minimum wage. You see them paying a lot more uh, attention to retraining. You see a lot more people, uh, companies. But, but at the same time, what the trust barometer says is that a small number of people still believe that business will actually do this. So what I think they were saying this year and are saying this year, and you'll see it play out through the year, this must be the year that, 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 that companies, if they are going to regain trust, NGOs, if they're going to regain trust, governments, they have to do something. They have to act. They have to actually, you know, make it work. This is the mandate. Uh, so it's been an interesting shift in their 20 years, and uh, they've had to kind of retool their methodology to be able to reflect this major change. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that dovetails, obviously, with what we've been talking about. When you see, you know, the theme and, and discussion at Davos and you see, you know, the uh, uh, the, uh, the realignment of their, their purpose at the Business Roundtable. So it does feel like there is this kind of shifting momentum where, where uh, the big corporate sector is incrementally really trying to be more more proactive on some of these things, uh, not only obviously because of some of the fundamental existential uh, threats uh, to the planet, uh, but also because of this issue with with trust, which continues to be be a real challenge. Yep. And uh, and of course, you know, we say this in the uh, in the context of we're talking on Friday morning, and uh, the Senate's expected to uh, uh, to vote to block uh, witnesses today. So uh, even though there's obviously uh, 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 
uh, a big majority of, of Americans would, would like to hear from witnesses as part of the impeachment trial. So, uh, so that's certainly interesting irony as we have this conversation about trust. Well, uh, and again, I think you're seeing it reflected in all three topics we're talking about. And I think that the, probably the best uh, bottom line statement, and, and you know, again, the World Economic Forum had, has so many different subgroups and sub-interests and sub-themes. Uh, uh, you, you can't keep up with them. I would even argue Fortune <laughs> has so many different lists and things. But I think the trust barometer and the bottom line that is is compelling. One, there's a paradox. Two, we got the corporations have to deal with it. Bottom line, and that's exactly what you're seeing going on this morning uh, uh, on Capitol Hill. That's the paradox uh, that you just described. So there you have it. Yep. Cool. All right. All important stuff. And uh, and with that, we're going to segue to some uh, some other really fun topics as part of the rest of the pod, Bruce. Uh, you know, uh, you know, this has really been a great a great stage setter for some other really serious things we're going to cover today. We're going to uh, talk about uh, GI Joe's 56th birthday and uh, and Valentine's Day. So thanks for really setting the uh, setting the setting the tone for the for the rest of the pod. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you the tone. No, I'll give you a segue. How about this? This is bumming me out. Unilever announced the other, Unilever announced the other day that they're going to unload Lipton tea because consumers don't like traditional tea anymore. I mean, come on, Lipton tea. This story goes all the way back. It's a great brand, and Sir Thomas Lipton, another amazing guy. Um, talk about sailing across the, the the Atlantic. Great sailor, you know, world, uh, just an amazing dude. I find that the fact that no longer is tea, uh, which as a business historian, I've always been intrigued by commodities like coffee and tea, that Unilever, this great giant, which, by the way, is helping lead the purpose movement, no longer sees any value in lipid uh. tea, and they're going to sell them out. kind of bums me out a little bit. So there you go. Maybe, there's, maybe, there's maybe, maybe Lipton needs to... Uh Maybe Lipton needs to pivot into a lower-cost kombucha, and they can reinvent themselves. There you go. Tommy, yeah. Tommy's kombucha. Tommy Lipton kombucha. I like it. I do, too. Who do you, uh, who do you, like, who do you like in the Super Bowl this weekend? Oh, I, you know, I have no skin in this game. Uh, so I'm at, you know what? I would really, again, as a historian, I would love to see Kansas City. Yeah, only because so fitting because of the because Only of the because their founder invented you know it's 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 the uh it's the nfl's 100th it's 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 uh hunt who the founder of kansas city came up with the came up with the name super bowl and and helped bring together the uh, american football league and the national football league just for that reason alone i i, I would really like to see them win yeah, it's a great point. And uh, by the time this uh, pot airs, we'll uh, we'll know who won. So, uh, so we'll see how that plays out. All right, buddy. We'll have a good weekend, and uh, I'll see you in Chicago next week, and we'll talk soon. Talk soon. So as I mentioned to Bruce there in our call, we have a February birthday. G.I. Joe is 56. And I didn't know how old G.I. Joe was. I mean, let's face it. He doesn't really look his age. And I also didn't realize that he had a long period of ostensibly being unemployed or inactive, as it were. Uh, so here's the origin story of G.I. Joe. It's the early 1960s, and Mattel was crushing it with the success of Barbie. 
And while Mattel is locked in on Barbie and literally just trying to keep up with the demand, its competitor, Hasbro, sees an opportunity to come out with a doll for boys. Enter G.I. Joe, which was a World War II era term for a serviceman, as in government-issue Joe. And there was incidentally a 1945 film called The Story of G.I. Joe. And originally, the idea was to develop a different doll for each branch of the military, but for whatever reason, that didn't pan out. But G.I. Joe was a big hit, and over the course of the 60s, Joe appeared as an astronaut, which of course makes sense given the 60s was the decade of man getting to space, and he was also a deep sea diver and a green beret. But as the Vietnam War waged on, G.I. Joe's popularity waned. And in 1970, Hasbro retooled Joe to be a land adventurer and positioned him engaged in more civilian missions like saving the environment and recovering mummies. Hasbro eventually shelved Joe completely, so I guess he was honorably discharged, as it were. Uh, But then in the 1980s, like a lot of icons from the 1960s, he had a comeback. The popularity of Star Wars toys created an opportunity, and G.I. Joe came back with a new enemy, a terrorist organization called Cobra. Remember that? And there was a Marvel comic book series that ran from 1982 to 1994. There was a video game on Atari and Commodore, and a TV cartoon called G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. And by 2004, G.I. Joe had sold over 400 million action figures, and in that same year was inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame. So, happy birthday, G.I. Joe. Now, we have Valentine's Day coming up next week, and my buddy Paul at work, who helps with the podcast, came up with the idea of getting someone on the pod who could talk about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And he was shocked when I told him that I didn't really know what that was. Uh, Maybe I had a vague idea, but I I didn't know the year or really any of the the particulars of this event. Uh, But Paul, to his credit, found someone who did. Uh, Garrett Peck is a historian and author who has written a number of books, including The Great War in America, World War I and Its Aftermath, Prohibition in Washington, D.C., How Dry We Weren't. And he has a new book coming out from Pegasus in a few months called A Decade of Disruption, America in the New Millennium, 2000 to 2010. So check that out. Also, interestingly enough, on the last pod we did on Prohibition, I mentioned the man in the green hat who was the bootlegger for Congress. And Garrett featured that fellow, whose name was George Cassidy, in his Prohibition book. And there's actually a gin called Green Hat Gin, which I think is a local uh, D.C. gin. Uh, So that's a nice little heritage touchstone there to George Cassidy, uh, Green Hat Gin. Uh, But anyway, uh, without further ado, let's learn more about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre with Garrett Peck. Hey, Garrett, how are you? Thanks for joining the pod. Uh, Thanks so much. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for inviting me to be here today. Yeah, of course. And uh, so our, our last episode, we delved into the, the topic of, of prohibition, which I know is a, uh, is a subject dear to your heart and that you've written about uh, quite a bit. And what, one of the interesting things that we explored in uh, our, our um, kind of review of the prohibition era is that 
it, it really didn't obviously unfold the way you see it um, uh, now uh, portrayed in terms of, you know, prohibition really being this kind of, you know, secretive thing. You know, when we talked to the historian uh, Daniel Okren, he talked about certainly in the uh, major urban areas, it was very out in the open. So this whole kind of uh, aspect of, of, you know, a lot of the, 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 uh, 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 drinking activities that were taking place being in these kind of hidden alleys is just really kind of romanticized. Um, but I think it's fair to say that uh, during Prohibition, there certainly uh, was uh, a, a, a rise of organized crime, uh, given the, the lack of, of regulation. And of course, uh, one of those iconic um, moments was the uh, was that uh, of course uh, sort of became a, a uh, an iconic moment of of the prohibition era was was the Valentine's Day massacre. Um, but before we jump into that specifically, you know, what was kind of what's your sort of take on on kind of the prohibition era and and that kind of dichotomy, if you will, of of much of the drinking really being out in the open, uh, but there obviously being this um, this rise of, of organized crime. Yeah, I, I, I guess if I looked at it like an economist, I would say that all prohibition actually did was deregulate the alcohol market. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and because the, you've got supply and demand, and uh, the, essentially prohibition tried to cut off the supply, but the demand was still there. And right. if demand is still there, someone's going to meet that demand with, with new supply. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. And Thus, we ended up with a nation full of scoff laws because some, so many people were, were, were just bedazzled by how much money they could make you know, yeah. by bootlegging alcohol and whatnot. So, and, it, and it certainly rolled out a huge red carpet for organized crime because it's something that anyone could get in on the game if they were willing to like, take the risks, and there were significant risks. But uh, there was so much money to be made, you know, untaxed. That's incredible. Yeah. And for those who, who don't know the, the story, uh, what was the St. Valentine's Massacre? Yeah, essentially it is the end of a turf war. It's probably one of the most symbolically important events that happens during, during National Prohibition. Um, it takes place on, on St. Valentine's Day in Chicago in 1929. And uh, in this case here, you had two rival gangs. Uh, you had the Northside Gang run by George Bugs Moran, which were largely Irishmen. And then, of course, you had Al Capone's gang on the South Side. They were known as the South Side Gang. And they were arguing over turf. And uh, uh, the North Side Gang was, uh, was hijacking a number of Capone's trucks and whatnot. And so Capone, who is probably, the, you know, in world history, he is the most famous gangster. And he basically orders uh, a hit on, on the North Side Gang. In other words, he wants to take them out out of the marketplace. And so on the morning of February 14th, 1929, uh, they had, his gang, the, the uh, Southside gang, had lured the members of the Northside gang to this garage over in the north side of Chicago. And uh, there were four men who showed up, sorry, uh, seven men on the, uh, on, the, on the north side side. So five of them were gang members and then two bystanders who were friends of the gang. And then these other four guys suddenly showed up, uh, two of them disguised as police officers and the other two as civilians. And the police officers very quickly arrested the seven men and lined, up, lined them up against the wall. And then the two men dressed as, in civilian clothes then pulled out Thompson submachine guns and machine gunned the seven men. It was just an absolute massacre. They killed all seven men. A couple of them 
stayed alive for a couple hours, uh, but they, they soon died as well. So this part of this whole disguise, what the, what the Capone's gang was doing, they had the two police officers, all right, right? So what they did, they, they, they pretended then to arrest the other two men, you know, because they came out there with their hands up and loaded them into the car and drove away. And the four executioners were never caught and never identified who, who exactly they were. It's still a mystery to this day. Just, just, wow. just amazing. Yeah. So seven men were executed, basically. Well, and it's so interesting to hear you tell the story, Garrett, because it sounds obviously with all of the historic, you know, context that we now have, it sounds so cinematic, right? It's almost cliche, uh, the yeah. story, um, because it obviously uh, must have had, you know, it must have been so sensationalized and had such a such a strong media influence. Um yeah. How, how, what was kind of the initial reaction uh, to this um, this event, and uh, from a from a, a media perspective? Yeah, yeah, it was it was a huge sensation. I mean, people were just stunned. It, it showed how much gangland violence was really taking over the cities. I mean, when when people were being executed like this, uh, Americans were not used to this type of violence, and seeing that the gangsters were using. Thompson submachine guns, which was this very, very effective. You know, everyone knows what those things look like. It's got this big drum magazine on it and just sure. sprays out 50 bullets, you know, in a couple seconds. Um, used during World War One, So just, it made a huge sensation. Um, most of the newspapers in the country printed this on the front page. It was all over the radio. The radio was a huge new technology in the 1920s. So news sure. got it around very, very fast, and people were just stunned. Um, I found this one um, op-ed in the New York Times from two days later, and, and the, the Times itself opined, quote, the man who can take down the lead, uh, who can take the lead and rid Chicago of her unspeakable gangs will be the greatest benefactor in her history. So hmm. people were really stunned by, by the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And of course, people then called for action to end this gangland violence. Yeah. Well, and, and as you noted, uh, Al Capone, of course, is, uh, uh, is so famous as, as a, gangster and um and uh mafia member what was he already known nationally as a as a as a gangster or did this event really kind of <laughs> kind of a ironic way to put it or did this <laughs> did, did, did this event really uh elevate his brand <laughs> Yeah, I'd say it's probably the latter. I mean, he was already very, very well known. I mean, the, the feds knew who he was. You know, he sure. got national recognition already, uh, and he loved the limelight. So, uh, so he lived at a hotel, and um, so very frequently had reporters, you know, who, who assembled around him and whatnot. And uh, he once told members of the press, he said, "I give the public what the public wants. I, I never had to send out high pressure salesmen. Why I could never meet the demand." In other words, you know, he was basically saying, like, "I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm delivering a public service. I'm doing some good here for everyone because it's what people want." Uh, even though, of course, he is the kingpin of a criminal organization. Yeah, and what 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 were the consequences of the Valentine's uh, of the St. Valentine's massacre? What happened afterwards? Did uh, did Capone and, and did his gang in, indeed achieve their goals? Yeah, they in the short term, yes, uh, they basically had taken over Chicago by this point because they had eliminated the rival gang. And amazingly, by the way, the the person they were after, Bugs Moran, um, saw the police, the fake police car, and so he ducked out into a coffee house. So he was actually not there. So uh, he survived, but his whole gang was wiped out. And so at this point, Capone and the Southside gang have taken over Chicago. So they've eliminated their rivals. 
Um, on the larger scale, though, that many of the gangsters recognized, you know, in, in all the different major cities along the Northeast and, you know, Kansas City, Ch- Chicago, Detroit, and whatnot, they, they recognized that the violence really was getting out of hand, and that was steering public opinion against them, A, and B, that it was drawing attention from federal law enforcement. So that was not a good thing if you're a gangster. So uh, later that year in Atlantic City, all the leading gangsters all met up in, and uh, at a hotel and basically had a peace summit whereby they, they called a truce and uh, agreed to sort of define their territories and found ways to collaborate and above all to keep the violence from getting out of hand because it was just drawing too much attention to them and from their main cause, which was trying to make money. Yeah. And how did that, and how did that play out? Um, it seemed to play out fairly well. Um, there's still more, obviously, more turf wars and whatnot, but uh, the major, major turf wars, such as you shot, saw in Chicago, um, seemed, to, um, seemed to dissipate a little bit here uh, after they had all agreed upon a truce. Yeah. And, and what, was, what was the lasting impact of, of this event, if, if any? Uh, it's, it's a pretty significant event. And again, by 1929, the public was already fairly cynical about prohibition. It had gone on now for, uh, for nine years, and everyone recognized that alcohol was fairly easy to get, albeit ex- expensive, and so many of the bootleggers and speakeasies were simply just operating out there in the open. So, you know, we had essentially become a nation of scofflaws, and people were, had become quite cynical about this. Uh, we, had, uh, we had just had a presidential election, and Herbert Hoover was sworn in on March 4th. Back then, presidents were sworn in in March rather than uh, January like they do today. So three weeks after the massacre... Hoover is sworn in, and he becomes probably the first and only president who actually tries to attempts to enforce prohibition. So uh, he, for example, launches the Get Capone campaign, and they eventually do get Al Capone on tax evasion charges. And uh, he also gets Congress to pass a law called the Jones 5 and 10 Act, which throws very severe penalties uh, at, at bootleggers and, and speakeasy owners, so which includes a $5,000 fine and 10 years in prison. So, of course, what the unintended consequence of that is, you know, beforehand, everyone essentially pleaded guilty or you know, they paid their fines and whatnot and they went back to business. <laughs> Under the, five, uh, the Jones 5 and 10 Act, the consequences were so severe, so, of course, every bootlegger who was arrested demands a jury trial. And this completely gums up the judicial system because you have yeah. just hundreds of thousands of bootleggers, you know. So it's, it's an unintended consequence uh, of prohibition. And it just, this heavy enforcement, all that it further does is just further breed more public cynicism against prohibition. And let's not forget that later that same year, in October, is the stock market collapse. Exactly. So, you yeah. know, Black yeah. Thursday. And, yeah. and um, that leads, of course, to the Great Depression. Um, which that itself is what leads to the end of prohibition itself. Yeah, um, yeah. I should point out one other fun little thing. Well, I shouldn't say fun, but uh, out of the St. Valentine Massacre, certainly a great deal of popular culture comes about, you know, out of this essentially American mythology around it. So, you know, including many movies, I think many listeners will recognize the movie The Untouchables. Sure. And then, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then there's another hilarious movie. I didn't actually see it until a few years ago, and it just knocked my thoughts off. It was so funny. Um, and it's the classic Some Like It Hot with Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon and Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. If you remember the story, you have these two musicians, which is, you know, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon. They witnessed the same Valentine's Day massacre. And so they go on the run in drag to try to escape the gangsters who are chasing after them. It is such a funny movie. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. And that's the legacy. That was 1959. And that was, that's part of the legacy of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. 
Yeah. Of course, now they're kind of, you know, it's a little satirical. They're making fun of it now. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, great. Well, a great a great conversation, Garrett, and a great a great way of us combining uh sort of our our our, our conversation in our last pod around uh, uh our last focus on the last pod around prohibition and and our our focus uh as we talk a little bit more uh in 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 this episode about about Valentine's Day. So, thanks thanks so much for uh thanks so much for uh for bridging bridging that gap for us. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us today and hope to uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Cheers, everyone. So thanks to Garrett for filling in my embarrassing knowledge gap on the Valentine's Day massacre and one of the biggest events in Prohibition era crime. And now on to some other history that entails Valentine's Day. And I was surprised to learn that, although quite different circumstances, obviously, the origins of Valentine's Day are also gory and violent, just like Capone's infamous mafia hit on Valentine's Day in 1929 Chicago. Uh, And to learn more about that, we have Lisa Battelle, who is the author of an article that appeared in the academic journal The Conversation and also in Smithsonian Magazine. The article is called The Gory Origins of Valentine's Day. And the article's auxiliary description is, The holiday began as a feast to celebrate the decapitation of a third-century Christian martyr, or perhaps two. So how did it become all about love? Lisa uh, Battelle is professor of history and religion at University of Southern California. She's also the author of several books, including Women in Early Medieval Europe, 400 to 1100, and a Landscape with Two Saints, how Genevieve of Paris and Bridget of Kildare built Christianity in barbarian Europe. So let's jump into my chat with Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for joining the pod. My pleasure. And uh, Lisa, I was uh, just uh, talking uh, with an author about the history of Saint, uh, the history of the Valentine's Day massacre, and uh, until we came across your article, uh, we did not realize that actually the origins of Valentine's Day share uh, almost as, uh, as as violent uh, a theme as uh, as the infamous uh, 1929 uh, mafia hit. Uh, so share for us and our listeners. Um, what is kind of the origins of Valentine's Day? Well, I was about to say it shares about as much love as the Valentine's Day massacre as well. Um, <laughs> because uh, St. Valentine, for all we know, was a third century uh, bishop from Italy, or else there were two of them, but they were go- both called Valentine. Um, and they were preachers. They were trying to evangelize and their story is essentially um, one of philosophers who wouldn't quit arguing. Uh, both of them got caught by Roman officials, and um, you know whether they wanted the same figure, they ended up being beaten, stoned, and beheaded for being Christian, uh, and then buried, and then people started coming to their tombs uh, in hopes of being cured of diseases, but not love sickness. I'm afraid to say. Huh. And what what was that? So so what's the evolution? How do we? Well, well, first of all, how did that how how did that event ultimately trigger uh, any sort of uh, day of of recognition or remembrance or honoring? 
Well, they were uh, saints who were recognized as martyrs were always uh, recognized. You know, they had a feast day. So every year uh, churches would celebrate, you know, the in honor of their their killing. Um, and that's true of hundreds and hundreds of saints. And there's a whole calendar of them that's developed through time so that Roman Catholic churches and some other Christian churches can remember which saint was on which day and tell their stories and pray to them. Uh, so Valentine and his other Valentines lasted through the Middle Ages. And in fact, his body was supposedly uh, sent around in bits. Some churches claim they had his head. Others claim they had his bones or, or one of his bones. So the cult of Valentine was established pretty well all over Europe. And um, people, you know, went to various churches to honor him on the 14th of February, his death day. And who who was it that who who was it that maintained or created this this calendar of saints that you mentioned? Oh, that was the church leaders over time. You know, it developed from very early days, as when Valentine might have been alive, uh, when they would just note down who died on what day, you know, who was executed when. Um, and they added to it as Christianity spread across Europe, you know, pick up the newly dead martyrs. Um, and they still add to it today, you know, adding people like, you know, St. Pio and Mother Teresa, St. Mother Teresa. But... Um, they occasionally the church would say, okay, this is official. These are the official saints of these days, and these others aren't such official saints. So in the 60s, for example, when uh, a famous time after Vatican II, when a number of very popular saints were knocked off the main list, St. Patrick and St. Christopher, uh, Valentine was one of the ones that got knocked off the main list. So Churches are allowed to celebrate his festival today, but they aren't required to. Oh, okay. So actually, uh, Valentine's kind of second tier, then, is what you're saying. Yeah, he's like a B, B plus saint. <laughs> a B plus player. <laughs> like a B, yeah. a B, act, a B actor. <laughs> On the bench right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, and, and so, so, so tell, tell, tell us more about this uh, spreading of his body parts across Europe. What's that all? Is that is that normal uh, for others? <laughs> yeah, I'm, or is, I'm or afraid that that's quite normal. Okay, yeah. yeah, and um, they, like share, they like to share the wealth, you know. Yeah, you know, and there is a doctrine in Christianity, in Catholicism now, that wherever the saints' bits of them are, and even things that saints touched and so forth, that touched their blood or their tombs, those things carry the what's called the imminence of the saint. They make the saint present to you. So if you pray to these things or near these things, uh, the saint hears you, and the saint intercedes for you with God, helps your prayers go, you know, a little bit speedier up to God. So people prayed wherever there were body bits, and some churches you know, Canterbury, for example, or Westminster, you know, various Roman churches, they have tons of little bits of people and vials of blood in their treasuries. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so, so how did Valentine's Day evolve to the more modern interpretation, and when did that happen in terms of it obviously being associated with, with love and, and culture? Yeah. This is such a great mystery story because, you know, in the early ch church, uh, a saint like Valentine, if he thought of love, it would have been love for God. Uh, and he would have been insisting on um, Christians sort of forgetting the things of this world, including, you know, pleasures of the body and attachments 
um, love attachments to other people, sexual attachments for sure, and concentrating on, you know, the, the second coming. Um, so there are some stories that developed in the Middle Ages that, for example, St. Valentine in jail before he got his head chopped off, um, wrote a letter to a girl he had cured of blindness on your Valentine, or that he married Christian prisoners in jail before they went, you know, to the stake or whatever. Um, but no right-minded bishop martyr in the third century would have been doing that kind of nonsense. So that's not where it started. But um, some people blame Chaucer, Geoffrey Chaucer, the 14th century famous poet uh, whose Canterbury Tales, a lot of high school children are forced to read. Um, and uh, he wrote a poem called The Parliament of Fowls, and he talks about spring starting around February, February 14th, the feast day of St. Valentine, because that's how they counted days back then. That was the feast day of Valentine. And how the birds were starting to court and mate on that day. And for some reason, that idea that Valentine's Day was the day the birds courted and mated spread among his writing literate class. So you got all sorts of aristocratic people writing back and forth to their lovers, you know, on St. Valentine's Day. You are my St. Valentine's Day lovely, or things like that. Uh, and it turned up in the literature across Europe. All of a sudden, people were talking about Valentine's lovers. Wow. Well, I, I have to say, I don't know if I'll ever hear uh, chirping birds in February uh, the same ever again on those on those uh, irregular days uh, here on the East Coast. When, well, uh, I it's, it's I can verify for you. Like today. <laughs> I'm sitting here in Oxford, England, and the birds are singing up a storm, and the daffodils are about to come up. So, you know, he may have had that part right. Yeah, right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But he was a great influencer in his time, so you know it spread this this idea, and then um, you know it sort of leaked into later medieval lives of Valentine. So you know he became sort of somebody who was protective of lovers, um, and he's still celebrated that way in some churches. Yeah, it, I, I had never heard this sort of iconography of of birds with Valentine's Day. Do, do you know how Cupid came along and, and came into the picture, or no? That was, I think that was quite late. That was 19th century folks making Valentines, maybe industrially. And, uh, you know, Cupid's always been a, a symbol of love, of yeah. erotic love, actually. Um, so a cute little angel looks a lot better than, you know, some magpie on a card, card for your lover. Um, and I imagine that's how it, it came to be. Got it. And then going all the way back, doesn't Valentine's Day also potentially have uh, some pagan or origins as well? Well, some scholars tried to argue that uh, in the 19th, early 20th century because uh, Valentine's Day falls suspiciously right around another holiday. Um, and uh, it was a holiday, uh, Lupercalia, where young men – would of the aristocracy would go down to a cave that was supposedly where um, I don't know if you know your mythology, but where the founders of Rome, Romulus and Remus, were nourished and brought up by a she-wolf, and they would get goats and lambs and kill them and sacrifice them 
to uh, uh, the, the wolf, the she-wolf. And then they would cut those hides into strings, like uh, whips, sort of, and run around town um, flogging young women, supposedly in order to make them more fertile. So, you know, it occurs somewhere near uh, Valentine's holiday, and uh, there was a Pope Gelasius in the 5th century who said, you know, no more Lupercalia. This is not really a Christian thing, and we're Christian now in Rome. Right, um, right, and right. some scholars have, uh, have gone and said, you know, he replaced the holiday of Lupercalia. But actually, there's no evidence to show that. He wanted everything pagan shut down. So, uh, But gotcha. that is the, the thing people point to, to say maybe there's a connection. Gotcha. Well, it's it's amazing when you learn about the origins and evolutions of these of these festivals and, and holidays, especially when you realize, you know, just the whole concept of, of applying literally a thousand years to it, right? Yes, from yes. from the origin of the third century all the way up to then, you know, Chaucer then embellishes it. I mean, it, it's amazing. I know. That, and, I mean, you know, the question it's is, not, it's why like Valentine? That's, like that's not a couple generations. I mean, that's a thousand <laughs> no. years. It just can't be your head yeah. around. So you have to thank the, the Catholic Church for maintaining those saints' cults until Chaucer could come along and make a holiday for us. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. So, well, I guess uh, I guess Hallmark, uh, Hallmark, and and Mars and Hershey all have Chaucer to thank for Valentine's Day. You betcha. So, well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us and uh, helping uh, give us a little bit of the backstory and uh, helping us uh, make a connection between uh, a, a more natural segue from the Valentine's Day massacre to uh, to the history of Valentine's. Yeah. So, and may uh, I just say, Happy Saint Blaise's Day today. Oh yes, indeed. Thank you very much. So we'll have to have you. We'll have to have you back on to uh, to talk about St. Patrick's Day next time. You you should yes certainly. All right. Thank you. So thanks to Lisa for giving us a crash course in Valentine's Day history, and it really is just mind blowing how long the history is of so many of our holidays. Of course, Valentine's Day is now a totally commercialized holiday, and one has to think that it's pretty clutch for the restaurant industry and, of course, chocolate companies and the cards and stationery industry, as well as, of course, flowers and jewelry, uh, especially at this time of year. And that's how we can draw a line between Chaucer and his mating birds as one of the early architects of turning Valentine's Day into a holiday of love and romance. And... Colonel Sanders and his fried birds. See how I did that? KFC is known for always having Valentine's Day themed marketing ploys in ads. Last year on Reddit, KFC made a post from the Colonel titled, You and your Valentine arrive at a romantic cabin in the woods. You walk inside to discover a Colonel Sanders bearskin rug. Best story wins a Colonel Sanders bearskin rug IRL, as in in real life. I mean, come on, who doesn't want a Colonel Sanders bearskin rug? KFC also included the opportunity to win prizes such as a date night package, gift card for the streaming platform of your choice, fried chicken patterned onesies, gotta have some of those, and of course, a free KFC date night every month for a year. Whew. 
Uh, and in 2018, KFC released scratch and sniff Valentine's Day cards that, of course, smelled like fried chicken. And last year, KFC also created a simulation choose your own adventure type game where users can date Colonel Sanders. Uh, now, that was not launched around Valentine's Day. So who knows? Maybe that will play into this year's plans. So we'll have to uh, we'll have to look into that. It is possible, actually, that Valentine's Day's popularity is waning. In 2009, for instance, 72% of adults aged 18 to 34 and 65% of those aged 35 to 54 said they planned to celebrate Valentine's Day. But 10 years later, uh, last year in 2019, those numbers had dropped to about 50% for both market segments. So there is a rise in celebrating anti-Valentine's Day, like Singles Awareness Day or Galentine's Day. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's because people are, are not in as many monogamous relationships. I don't know what explains this drop-off. But single awareness, incidentally, is a very big deal in China. Since the 1990s, Singles Day has celebrated all the people without a significant other. And the holiday takes place on November 11, or 11-11, symbolically representing bare branches, which is a Chinese term to describe bachelors. I bet you didn't know that. And due to the one-child policy and cultural emphasis on having a son in China, there are nearly 34 million more Chinese men than women out of a total population of 1.4 billion people. And that leaves a lot of lonely dudes. And Singles Day has become one of the top retail days in China, kind of like Black Friday here in the U.S., but much bigger. The e-commerce giant Alibaba began to spin the holiday as a day to buy gifts for yourself, and it has proved to be immensely successful. Chinese retailers began offering discounts and items themed around being single, like boyfriend pillows and single plane tickets. For Singles Day 2019, retailers sold $38 billion worth of goods in 24 hours. And for comparison, sales on Black Friday only reached about $7.5 billion. But despite those numbers in China and the U.S., I don't think we're going to be going celibate anytime soon. Uh, in fact, 40% of Americans use online dating platforms, and revenues for the industry are expected to reach $649 million in 2023. And it's likely that new innovations in AI and even DNA testing will start to shift the dating landscape all over again. And that brings us to our mystery company of the day. This company began a dating service late last year, and this month it turns 16. That company, of course, is Facebook. That's right, Facebook. My God, look how big you can get in 16 years. And I guess it makes a ton of sense, really, for Facebook to be in the matchmaking business, especially because today online dating services cater to specific groups of consumers and niche interests are way more common than you might think. There are 8,000 dating sites and 1,500 dating apps in the world today. So if you're looking to settle down with a farmer or rancher, FarmersOnly.com can help. Maybe you're into men with facial hair. You can join the dating app Bristler. Gluten-free? How about GlutenFreeSingles.com? Want to find love with someone who shares your passion for clowning? ClownDating.com has you covered. 
And interestingly enough, the beginning of online dating can really be traced back to the 17th century when newspapers began to publish personal ads. One of those historical ads we found placed by a British gentleman read, quote, a gentleman about 30 years of age that says he has a very good estate would willingly match himself to some good young gentlewoman that has a fortune of 3,000 pounds or thereabouts. Now, 3,000 pounds is equivalent to roughly 300,000 uh, pounds today. Uh, so clearly that, that guy was not looking to be the only breadwinner in the, uh, in the marriage. And about a century later, the first newspapers for single people uh, called the Matrimonial News was published. Uh, men paid about 25 cents to place an ad, which is about $4.50 today. And women could post for free. By 1900, there were about 20 of these kinds of newspapers designed to help people find love. Then, in 1959, two Stanford students created the first attempt at a computer matching service for a class project. With a punch card questionnaire and an IBM 650 mainframe computer, the two students matched 49 men and 49 women. And two Harvard students later replicated a service very similar to this project, but they called it Operation Match, and they charged people $3 to fill out a questionnaire in order to be matched. The service took off among college students around the country, and competitors like Contact Inc. from MIT began to pop up. So MIT, Harvard, Stanford, there's a rich tradition of building social networks at these schools even well before Facebook. And then, of course, the age of the internet in the 90s began to revolutionize how people saw dating. In 1995, the term online dating was searched over 135,000 times per month. Online dating sites that we still know today were founded, like Match.com in 1995 and JDate in 1997. Email and instant messaging also allowed people to communicate and connect with each other in new ways. And then in 1998, the movie You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan premiered, helping to normalize internet dating. And I guess that makes sense. When you get Tom Hanks involved, it's definitely going to help normalize and mainstream anything. Uh, so hopefully we will not see Tom Hanks anytime soon on clowndating.com. Okay, so uh, on that note, let's end it there. Uh, happy Valentine's Day or happy Galentine's Day or happy Party By Yourself Day or whatever it is you plan to do on February 14th. And congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs for winning the Super Bowl, a great ending to the NFL's 100 season. Uh, thanks to Bruce for joining me as always. Thanks also, of course, to Garrett Peck and Lisa Patel. Be well, everyone, and thanks for listening to History Factory Plugged In.